Any questions? Hmm. Um, I was hoping you could tell us something more about Tulsi then, of how she serves Krishna. I was wondering if there is some story like behind, or I would like to hear her story, if she ever takes like a human-like form, or if she's always like, mm-hmm. as we see her now. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of nice stories about Tulsi Devi and her power to bless us and deliver us and so forth. And uh, although Vrindavan is named after Tulsi, her other name is Brinda, Brinda Devi. And so she grows abundantly there as a plant, worshipped as a plant. She's more identified with Vaikuntha and Vishnu and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's Leela, of course. And there's a story, maybe from a Vaibhartha Purana or something like that, about Dulce and, uh, and Narayan, like a wife of Narayan, and having to come to earth as a plant. She was cursed or something like that. And she cursed Vishnu to become a stone. And so we have the Shalagram. So there are stories like that. I'm not, I've heard them, I don't remember the details in a number of them. Some are nice, nice uh, stories from the different Puranas and so forth. But again, as a plant, as we worship, we mostly follow as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu did. There's a nice song that's sung in many moths worshipping Tulsi in terms of the, the part that she plays in Vishnu worship mm-hmm. and how dear she is to him and, and uh, he doesn't accept offerings that... Uh, aren't um, flavored by sacred basil and, uh, and so on. All of that mostly with regard to Vidimarg or Vaidhi Bhakti. That song and, and her relationship with Vishnu and and the way in which she's uh, regarded in Gaurlila was associates and worshipped and so forth. But there's another song, and that's a song that we often sing daily, and um, that speaks of Tulsi uh, as as Brinda Devi. So again, Brindavan. Bon means forest, and Brinda means forest of Tulsi. There are twelve forests in the Braj Mandal, the circle of Braj, and Brindavan, that forest is the chief amongst them. And there, all the flowers for the worship of Radha and Krishna are, are, are gathered from there. So, um, as a plant, which is what you're asking, in Brindavan, she's prominent. In that way, as a as a forest, like as again providing all the flowers for the worship of Radha and Krishna, but she certainly has a personified form as well as a gopi in Vrindavan, um, but a mystical kind of gopi, sometimes identified with uh, with Yoga Maya and and Lila Shakti, kind of an adjunct to uh, Yoga Maya or assistant. Of Yoga Maya, something like that, whose Yoga Maya is orchestrating the Leela behind the scenes and, and so forth, who's, who's personified in, in different ways, but prominently as the elderly Purnamasi, who appeared in Vrindavan area just before the birth of Krishna and predicted his birth. 
to the inhabitants of of Vrindavan who were all happy and content in all respects with their lives and their their king on the Maharaj, uh, except for one problem, and that was that their king didn't have a son. And so she, when she appeared on the scene, she said, don't worry, she made a, a prediction that uh, soon on the Maharaj and she would have a son. So the inhabitants very much welcomed her and believed in her psychic abilities. And um, constructed a small hut around the banks of the uh, Jamuna. And um, she's related also with uh, the friend of Krishna named Madhu Mangal, and directly and indirectly with Tulsi. And, and all three of them are involved to different degrees in helping to orchestrate Krishna's pastime. But, but in a prominent way, Purnamasi and Brenda Devi, that's her name. And so she's a, she's like a forest gopi. There's no mention of her parents, and uh, like other gopis and and family and so forth. So kind of uh, mystical forest dwelling nymph or something like that. It's an English term, but and so she's so much, very much behind the. Um, Helping to orchestrate the lila and the, and the and particularly the union of of Radha and Krishna, very much in, involved in that. She turned the forest over to Radharani, actually, and um, Krishna acquiesced to that. And there's a long explanation of that given by Shiva Goswami in a book called Madhav Mahotsava, in which uh, Radharani is then given a sacred bath and coronated as queen of Vrindavan. And from that comes the name Vrindavan Eshwari. So although Vrindavan in one sense belongs to Tulsi, she simply steps aside and offered the position to Radharani, although Krishna also thinks that he can call Another fact, and he was happy to see the coronation of Radha as the queen of Vrindavan. So, as a Shakti, prominent uh, manifestation of Lord Shakti, he's also very much identified with with Radha. So, you can keep the Tulsi in your house and worship and consider that, that she's a in an extension of the presence of Srimati Radharani in the home. And we were talking about the other day, it's a bit of a miracle that she's appeared in the Western world and in, in such cold climates as, as Finland as well. Prabhupada used to like to call her health a barometer as to the level of the devotee's devotion. <laughs> I think you need some gardening skills as well <laughs> to, grow, to grow her. But in the writings of the Goswamis, uh, Ruva Goswami and uh, Jiva Goswami, as I mentioned, in particular, there are a number of few the prominent place prominently in the intrigues revolving around the attempts to unify. Radha and Krishna, despite all odds, and uh, despite uh, not only opposition but competition, and uh, she's very much in that competition, of course, on on the side of of Radha. She personifies someone who cannot tolerate the idea that Radha would be associated with anyone, but Krishna, or that Krishna would be associated with anyone. But Radha. So she's very powerful also in the capacity to bestow bhakti. So we should take the worship of Tulsi very, very seriously. I know that uh, there's a nice story how in Bengal, in West Bengal, in Navadweep, place of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, some uh, devotees got initiated. 
by the great uh, Siddha Mahatma Jagannath Das Babaji. Bhaktivinoda Thakur was living in Nav- Navadvip at the time. And after they were initiated, some other devotees who had been initiated by someone else heard about that and congratulated them and then asked them, so what did Babaji Maharaj give you? What did he... Kind of instruction, what secret things did he tell you, and so forth. And they said, well, he didn't really tell us anything. He told us to worship Tulsi, plant Tulsi, and worship Tulsi, serve him, and so forth. And so those devotees felt like, oh, that he didn't give to them that what was, you know, usually gotten, and, uh, which unfortunately in many instances is more of a sleight of hand than than not, and their imitation gurus and, and, and so forth. And so anyway, they then were a little concerned that maybe, you know, they didn't really get initiated because they didn't get what other people were saying they got from their gurus. And they just got this instruction to worship Tulsi. So they, they went to Bhakti Vinod, who was approachable and, and whatnot, and, and tended to stay living there at the time. And when they told him the story, then he, he was very, he thought that they were very much blessed and that they had good, very good instruction from Wilkishirdas Babaji. Not that they had been cheated, but rather the implication was that maybe other people are being deceived, deceiving themselves and being deceived thereby and so forth. So, uh, it's a very simple act, the worship of Tulsi, very easy to perform, but very, very powerful. Haryas Thakur used to chant always by the, by the Tulsi. So it's very helpful also to, if you do japa in the presence of, of Tulsi. She has a, also an, a particular aroma that she emits at, during the Brahma Muhorta, just about an hour and a half before the sunrise. And if you become more spiritually advanced, then you can smell it. <laughs> and um, so she plays very prominently in uh, Krishna Lila as a person, which is, which is your question, right? Primarily. As Vrinda Devi, sometimes you can when they become available more readily in English, you can read some of the books like Vidagda Madhava, Lalita Madhava, Vidagda Madhava, Gopal Champu. So I mentioned Sri Madhava Mahotsava, which is about the coronation of Radha as the queen of Vrindavan. In these kinds of books, Muttacharita and so forth, Leela books of the Goswamis, then her part has like say like Mila Shakti is brought out considerably and that is the most um, the most important for us as Gaudiya Vaishnavas aspiring to have a place in Vrindavan, a residence. The song we sing is, uh, is an appeal. It's, it's interesting because it's sung quite w- widely in ISKCON and I, I, I don't wonder if they ever stopped to th- Sometimes to think of the meaning, the, the way they are sometimes so much against hearing about higher topics and thinking about that. It's a very high song, actually. Praying for a residence in Vrindavan, in the groves of Vrindavan, by her mercy then, uh, one's desire for that will be fulfilled. And always have the darshan of Radha and Govinda. Actually, the song in its original form is a prayer to become a, a, an intendant of, of Radha and asking for Vrindadevi's blessing that one could become a maidservant of, of Radha and Vrindavan. So it's a very high deal. And the implication is that she has the power to, to give that, that kind, of a, kind of a blessing. A fellow had asked about that kind of thing, how to get Brajabhakti. So that's all in the way. It's also bathing in the Jamun, worshipping, those things are possible. They have the power to give that. Of course, there's the standard method and so forth, and it does include worshipping Tulsi, bathing in the Jamun, respecting her waters, and so on and so forth. But they can step out, so to speak, and, uh, and, uh, 
show special mercy, Govardhan also. So we should pray to them in that way. They are Govardhanas knowing all the pastimes of Krishna, towering up high as he is above all of Vrindavan. He sees everything. So he knows so many things. And Brinda Devi you know, working behind the scenes in so many ways. Also closely again associated with uh, Purnamasi, she knows everything about Radha and Krishna's pastimes. So she can reveal those things. She has that capacity. This is the point. And she may do so if she becomes so inclined. So it behooves us immensely to uh, have the highest regard for Tulsi Devi and, and plant her, grow her, take care of her, and so on. Does that help? Yes. How did we ask the other day, is it, is it actually a good idea to grow Tulsi here in Finland? Because, because she will grow, but then in the winter, it's hard to get her to survive the winter. Mm-hmm. Well, she also has a hard time in Vrindavan, surviving the winter, and then she grows again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, it's like saying, Life will be short, should we not live? So, (laughs) and she will give you life also. The fact that Tulsi will die, apparently, and so forth, this is again something like um, I've given the example of the deity or the book, the scripture. It's an example of eternity and time meeting. So it takes on a uh, a, uh, an appearance of being under the influence of time and so forth. But if we approach the book, the scripture, the deity, Tulsi, including this, in the right way, we find that it trans- that they have the power to transport us beyond time and space. So they're appearing in our frame of reference, but to take us out. And then in order to do that, appear in our frame of reference, they take on an appearance of being under the influence of time. Krishna is the same way. Krishna appears to come and disappear at some point. And he has a leela of dying also. He died by uh, an arrow, an arrow in the foot of a hunter. But he was showered with arrows, wasn't it, by... Bhishma, in the Mahabharata war, didn't phase him at all. So how one arrow in the foot could, could kill him? And of course, if you study the Leela in Bhagavatam, you, you see that it's just his pastime, and finding a way to leave, and leaving a justification for those who insist on believing he's other than what he is, giving them a way to support their, their faith. Krishna likes to support faith. <laughs> Either the abundance of it or the, or the lack of it. Everyone has some faith. They are their faith. Without faith, there's no life. Without faith, there's no life. You have to believe to live. If you don't believe, you don't have faith, then there's no impetus to act, do anything. So that's why we, in Sridhar like to call the spiritual world planets of faith. Hmm? It is fully alive. You understand my point? Faith is life. Without faith, if you don't have faith, if you don't have belief, that's why sometimes the universal, it is universally accepted that faith is a good thing, no matter what it's in. Now we would like to qualify that and say that there are, there are better types of faith. Some faith is better than other faith. And it gives more life and so forth. But in general, yes, it's true. Faith is of the nature of sattva. It gives conviction. And then with conviction we can act. So, faith is central, it's important. Bhagavad Gita tells us, Krishna says in Gita, a person is his or her faith. That's what we are. Faith brings everything to life. And therefore suspicion, in Sri language, leads to suspension. When we're suspicious, then we, we can't move, we can't go forward.
divine faith, then, then we transport us to the land of faith. There, they're very appropriate to describe that world as a, as you know, most likely was planet of faith. No doubt there. So then you can proceed happily, unencumbered by the need for things to make sense and and all. Unencumbered by, by knowledge. And then and, and that's us freedom to interact with with the absolute in intimacy. So such life, everything alive there. But faith is life. There's a place of faith. And faith is the vehicle to go there also. And we get faith from people who have that. It's contagious. Associating with faithful people who have faith means who have experience. Then we get faith as well and conviction and the power to proceed. So we should have faith in all of these things. Tulsi, Govardhan, Jumuna. You know, they may look through the lens of our mind and intellect and necessity to have everything be reasonable and make sense to be superstitious rituals. Some people may think like that, and those thoughts may come in our mind sometimes also. We can dispel them. They have great power. There are many examples in the history of devotion in the world of their power. It doesn't happen every time. And if you worship Tulsi, you will get this. So, like in Bhaktivedanta Sindhu, there are many things mentioned, the results of this activity or that activity. It doesn't mean that they happen every time, but they can, they have happened. And there are examples that Rupa Goswami gives from the scriptures, and therefore the implication is the power, the potential for that to happen. Therefore, we should do those things: walk in the Rathiyatra procession, worship Tulsi, come before the deity, and sing in His name, and so forth. These things have great power, and we can see the power in the. Their power in in great devotees like Rupa Goswami, who's written about them, and so forth, with his spiritual power. The mind, the intellect, is a great can be a great obstacle to knowing. And it's a, they are dead things. Mind, intellect, they are matter. So what can they know about life? They are inferior to consciousness, inferior to God. So, how can they demonstrate the existence of the soul, the existence of God? They would have to be superior to do that. They're inferior. And we should not rely upon them for everything. They will take the life, then, out of the descent of divinity, which appears within our frame of reference for the express purpose of taking us out. It's not unreasonable that such a thing would take place, and there are many examples also. And it should be encouraging to us to know that there's life beyond mind, beyond intellect. As I've many times said, that as our practical experience, that life does not work in a, in a reasonable way. That by giving, you will receive. That doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's a fact. It goes on in a mystical way. So all these simple activities, like worshipping Tulsi, they should be taken very seriously. And yes, she has a personified form as a forest gopi who is very much involved in helping to, behind the scenes, orchestrate the union of God and Krishna, which is our ideal. This is our whole whole idea, the whole idea of Vrindavan, to bring together Radha and Krishna, to be part of that, to assist in that. What else? Um, you mentioned earlier that uh, Tulsi Devi is uh, an expansion of Radharani, and it's also said that Tapalaram is expansion of Krishna, and so on. So, um, could you explain a little bit this idea of God expand, expanding himself? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mentioned the other day when we were talking about Nityananda Prabhu and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Nityananda Prabhu being an expansion of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. 
that this is this uh, difference. God is one, but to be expressed differently is um, the expression of the philosophy, so to speak, in ecstasy. So perhaps you can think of it um, in relation to yourself, your person, and you're one person, but you have different appearances nonetheless relative to different types of people that you associate with. If you come here, you dress in a particular way. And if you go to work, and you're known by a particular name, and you act in a particular way. And if you go to work for some employer, then you will dress differently. He will know you by a different name. And, and uh, so you are a different person in, in different places relative to whom you're with. If you go home with your parents, they still know you in a, in a different way. So, so Krishna appears in different forms, and largely that is relative to the devotees he's associated with, and the fact that people worship him in different ways and approach him in different ways. He says in the Gita that, however people approach me, then I reciprocate accordingly. So, the whole appearance of Krishna in any number of his forms, any one of his forms, is all tied relative to the love of his devotees. That's why we say that the love of Krishna and Krishna are one. That's why we say Radha and Krishna are one, because Radha's love and Krishna, Swayam Bhagavan, correspond. She's the full expression of love, and he's the complete object of love that corresponds with that. So the two are one, but they're different at the same time for the sake of pastime, for the sake of Lila. So the heart of the devotee, therefore we say, Krishna is in the heart of the devotee. And in different ways, relative to their approach to him. Again in the Gita he says, as they approach, so I reciprocate accordingly. So there are so many types of uh, appearances of Vishnu and avatars and Different, uh, different devotees, and and why they like one and the other not the other, or why Hanuman likes Ram and more than Krishna and so forth. This is not to be reasoned about. Neither is it the problem. It's the beauty of the spiritual world that uh, diversity. So, in a sense, we all have different aspects of our personality expressed in relation to different people. So. Krishna's multifaceted person, and so he has many different appearances. That's a simple way of, of putting it. And this is, again, is for his own purpose. His purpose he, he is joy, ecstasy, anandamayopyasat. He is joy. And so there's no... Whatever will facilitate the, to facilitate the expression of his... His being, his joy, in so many in so many different ways, he appears. When we make ourselves one with Krishna in devotion, by having no separate interest, now there's a difference, apparent difference between ourselves and Krishna, and the, the difference is based on interest. We have an interest that's different from Krishna's. We have our own will. Our objective is to make our will one with Krishna. As long as we have any separate interest, then that will get in the way of our being united with Krishna. So when we have no separate interest, this is then the basis of the life of of the Leela. So you understand this point. We become one with Krishna in love. Although he expresses himself in many ways as joy personified, he does that through those who are one with him. If we become one with Krishna, we can experience a transcendental difference from Krishna at the same time, as he plays himself out, so to speak, through us and other devotees. After all, if you have no will other than to serve Krishna, then some service to Krishna, some loving relationship with Krishna 
manifest? Where is it coming coming from? (laughs) You understand? So, there's only Krishna, in one sense. But such a uh, a varied expression of the sacred Leela through his different shaktis. We are also a shakti of Krishna. When we properly identify ourselves as such, there's scope for interacting with him in the context of the Leela, which is a varied expression of the Absolute's joy. Krishna has different kinds of shaktis also. So there, his own inner shakti is his swarup shakti. And his swarup shakti is constituted of three constituents. Sandini, Samvit, Ladini. So the Sandini, that is Balaram, he personifies that, presides over that. That means the Sudasattva, existence, pure existence. So all the forms in the spiritual world are manifestations of this uh, Balaram's Sandini Shakti. So in a sense, Krishna has a purpose to manifest the, uh, a perfect abode for expressing himself in joy. Balaram has this function. So he's, in one sense, all these different forms are relative to the love of the different devotees and the different ways in which the devotees approach Krishna. But also in another sense, there's no origin to them and they have a, they have a function in the context of the entirety of the, of the Leela, like Balaram. Manifestations of his Swarup Shakti, like Yashoda, Nanda Maharaj. Radharani and so forth, different from us. They're also souls, but not Tatasta, but Swarup Shakti. Does that help at all? So this it's understandable. He's one, but he has many varied expressions of himself. He's multifaceted. Balaram has his own devotees who are mostly under his his shelter. Many of Krishna's friends are like that. He's very predominant in their their devotion and their in their, their lives of transcendental love. What else? Let's hear from a turn off here. First. Well, me and people we were discussing yesterday about the worship of Krishna and worship of Guru. Um we had a long discussion and trying to boil it down to a question here. Um, there are like certain individuals, um, like groups like Ritics or uh, or like worshiping Prabhupada in a very prominent way. And for example, we have the build Prabhupada's Palace of Gold. So we were discussing why not for Krishna, not for Prabhupada. And uh, we're discussing this point that uh, when does it come to the point that you're overemphasizing a person that God resides in the worship? Uh, so what is my point? So how, how <laughs> to, so how to harmonize? Because Krishna, in a sense, he likes us to mm-hmm. worship his devotees. Mm-hmm. But I think I understand the drift of your question. Yeah. So where to mm-hmm. harmonize this? Mm-hmm. Where's the balance? So, to speak? Mm-hmm. so it doesn't become a personal, personal cult, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no limit to which you can worship the spiritual master, the guru, in one sense. But he or she may regulate that. That's their prerogative. I'll give you an example. Once Prabhupada gave a lecture in Mayapur and he said, in the context of the lecture, he said, he made a statement that so the uh, great devotees, the spiritual master and so forth, should be addressed as Thakur. And uh, it was one of the comments he made in the lecture. I forget what the context was entirely. But anyway, afterwards, 
some of the devotees approached Prabhupada, and one of them said, so Prabhupada, we want to address you as Thakur, you know, Prabhupada Thakur or whatever, you know, add that to your name. And Prabhupada said, why? And I said, well, well, you just said in the lecture. <laughs> Prabhupada said, oh, no, no not now. <laughs> so that's his prerogative to accept or to regulate that as he sees fit. Our business is just like if you want to feed somebody, then you try to put as much on the plate, make them feel comfortable to eat as much as possible. And their business is to go, you know, you know, like this, and cover their plate, knowing the power of their digestion and what would be ordinate and what would be inordinate given the time and circumstance and, and so on and so forth. So it's not from our side, our prerogative, to regulate that and restrict that. We should have full devotion for our guru. If we understand the significance of guru, then certainly we will, but he or she may regulate that. And then we may learn a particular standard from our guru who regulates that and then think what would be appropriate and what would not be appropriate. But that's coming from his side. And you may tell your god, oh no, don't do that. Rumors won't like that or something. But the spirit should be on our side, that, and this is the philosophy that there is no limit to which we can worship the guru. Sakshadhojitena samasta shastra. So, like Krishna has come to us and represented by the guru. So, all how much regard will we give to Krishna? Is there any limitation? No. So, no limit to how much we can worship the guru. And when they wanted to build the Prabhupada's palace of gold. In Nubrandavan, this idea came, and that's what you're referring to, one of the things you mentioned. Then Prabhupada made that point. They asked him about it. He said, there's no limit to which you can worship the Guru. So we should think in, in that way and wait then for him to regulate that, what he feels will be appropriate again, given time, circumstances, and culture, and, and so on, because he has a mission, after all. And it's possible that a certain standard of worship might impede that. So that will be at his discretion. However, having said that, at the same time, there is a possibility of over-worshipping. In fact, I wrote a letter once to the um, ISKCON uh, leadership. I had been invited to discuss some points with them several years ago, about ten years ago, in Mayapur. And when I got there, they they proved to be a little rude, and so I wrote them a note. And uh, I still have that, I'll show it to you sometime. But um, in there, I said that one of the problems with ISKCON is over-worship. Over, I said something like that, over-worship of Prabhupada. Over-glorification of Prabhupada. I like to say things, you know, like I'm that kind of person. That just, oh, what? <laughs> he said this. And, and in fact, I was invited to speak to some devotees at a place called Prabhupada Village. And I go there. It's in North Carolina, eastern seaboard of the United States, southeastern. And um, the first time I went there, were you with me the first time I went, I think? No, I think was it the second time? Yeah. Hmm. Okay, what's the second time? There was a fellow who was involved in over-glorification of Prabhupada, and, and he somehow he had a copy of that letter, and he put it in every mailbox. It's, all, it's a community of devotees. They own acreage and, and so forth. They have the house, and somebody lives on Krishna Lane, and Prabhupada Street, and and so forth. Uh, you know, it's a nice idea. But um, anyway, he put this in there, and he, he, his, uh, his objective was to discourage people from hearing from me. And this was his evidence that, you know, that he said, and he had, he gave the whole letter, but he just underlined that one sentence and put an arrow on the, you know, the margin, you know, <laughs> here. This is what this guy's about, you know. So people get it and they just leave that, and, you know, put it down. But some people read the whole paragraph and the whole letter, and they could understand. Because immediately after I said it, I explained 
what I meant and so forth. And interestingly enough, as I mentioned, as I say, he was the personification of what I was talking about. And he didn't get it. And while there's no, so that while there's no limit to which we can worship the spiritual master, if our worship is contrary to the principles of bhakti, then it's not really worship. You understand? But it's not grounded in shruti, smriti, paranadi, pancharatiki, bidimbina, ikontiki, harayar, bhakti, rutpadya, If bhakti, to Krishna for that matter, or guru bhakti, similar idea, is not supported by the scripture, if it's just a concoction of what is worshipped, then that is rather a disturbance to the society, not bhakti. So it's possible that the worship of the guru can be such where it comes into conflict with the teaching, even. And then it becomes inordinate and becomes uh, a disturbance, it becomes a problem. So then there are instances of that where they will say, I don't care about the philosophy, I'm just worshipping Prabhupada or something like that. Or the worship, the worship of Prabhupada, the sentiment for Prabhupada, for example, and the faith in Prabhupada, the chastity, they like to use that term sometimes, to Prabhupada, is such that it makes one uh, offensive to other agents of Krishna makes one so insular in his outlook that there is no looking out and uh, it's, it becomes unhealthy and it's not uh, well integrated and it becomes a disturbance. So worship can be unlimited and in, 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 in so many varieties of sentiments can be expressed, but they have to be in accordance with, fit within the parameters of the philosophy. What is Gaudiya Vaishnavism. So, if in the name of worshipping, we're actually here, we're offending here, here, and here, then what is that? If we make an offense to a Vaishnav, then our guru may be implicated in that because he's the disciple is his extension and so forth. So, he's responsible. He's taking some responsibility for you. Now, if you go and offend a Vaishnav, will he be pleased with that? And he doing it in his name? Yeah, it's, 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 Prabhupada is great, I only listen to him. And then they say something derogatory about, about somebody else and try to stop people from hearing from that person who, who isn't expressing his or her love and faith and chastity to Prabhupada in, a, in, an, overtly, in an overt way. And after all, that is more ordinate actually. That's more beautiful. The more you have love for a person, then you will speak about it. That's true, outwardly, but it will also develop inwardly. And there will be more often times where you will not bring it up. Actually, more standard in Gaudiya Vaishnavism is the idea of keeping one's, the name of one's guru secret than telling it to everyone. That's a private thing. Who is my guru? Who is my My private life. That is more, more ordinate. That makes it more attractive, doesn't it? Oh, he's got a guru. Who is? What's it? That's another thing. Some other time <laughs> we talk about that. And instead of, my guru has come to save the world. You have to listen to him. And, this is his name, and you should be bowing down here, and this kind of thing. There may be a place for that too, and you know, also mm-hmm. for, for preaching. But this other way is more charming and uh, and often compelling. So, while someone may be dedicated and strictly following the teachings of the Guru, I mean, what is the meaning? Yeah, the fellow was thinking he was more devoted to Prabhupada than myself, but he couldn't even follow the basic practices that Prabhupada asked him to follow. I met him there. I asked him, so, are you chanting 16 rounds? He said, well, uh, uh, I can't do that uh, right now. I haven't been able to. I can't say it, but I love Prabhupada. So, I think you have some love for Prabhupada, but you're a little confused also. And so, uh, uh, so that can be a problem. And um, 
So that's where you have to look and see if the glorification of the Guru is coming in conflict with the actual teaching, then it's worship and glorification in name only. It's not grounded in the philosophy and it's not appropriate expression. Otherwise, as I say, worship of the Guru, Guru Bhakti, that is most uh, desirable. In Bhakti Sandarva, Jiva Goswami mentions about worship of the Guru. And there he makes the case that ordinarily speaking, in the worship of Krishna, the worship of the Guru is also included. Worship of Krishna is the root, and worship of the Guru fits within that, like a, like a branch of the tree of worship of Krishna. Because, well, to know that Krishna is worshipable, we have to hear we hear that from a Guru, and, and how to worship Krishna. And so we always show our, offer our respect to our Guru before worshiping Krishna. So it's included within the context of Krishna Bhakti, Guru Bhakti is automatically included. But some devotees, they reverse this out and they make worship of Krishna part of the worship of Guru rather than worshiping Guru part of the worship of Krishna. We call it a Guru Bhakti. So the worship of the Guru becomes like the root. And worship of Krishna is subordinate to that. <laughs> This is backwards. But, but Krishna likes that very much. Krishna takes great, more pleasure in that because he is devotee worshipped. So that's not a, a mistake. But, yeah, like you were saying, well, but it isn't about worshipping Krishna, right? But Krishna takes great pleasure in seeing this devotee worshipped, as long as it, as I say, doesn't come into conflict with what the teachings are and, and in the name of worship. It's really just fanaticism, sentiment, without philosophy. Tagore, he said, was, probably used to cite that. So what is it? Sentiment without philosophy is just fanaticism, something like that. And philosophy without sentiment, yeah, religion is mental gymnastics or something like that. Speculation. Yeah, yeah. So when we find instances of worship that are an expression of a sentiment but it's not grounded in the philosophy it comes into conflict with the philosophy with the teaching then we call it fanaticism this is a worse than than, um, than nothing it's negative it's a disturbance to the community of real devotees it's a huge obstacle then they got it but they got it wrong so <laughs> it's worse than not having it at all start with a clean slate, it's much easier to write what you want to write. You have to cross off so many things and erase it and first before writing, then it's so much more difficult. So we find this, uh, they, a lot of people have this kind of fanaticism. It's, it's, it's ironic because it's all in the name of devotion and chastity and, uh, and so forth, and it's, it's counterproductive, actually. It's all in the name of parampara, and it, it's, it's really the antithesis of the parampara. It's, it constitutes being disconnected from the, from the disciplic succession. And nothing could be further evidence than that phenomenon as to the need of the guru parampara, an ongoing insight in the, the company of a living representative to help us sort out a real devotion from apparent devotion. That is, I mean, a wolf in sheep's clothing is very dangerous. Now, you know, you brought this up in the context of, of some disciples of Prabhupada and so forth. But this goes on in so many places also. Prabhupada's mission is kind of big, and there are some real zealots there sometimes, but it goes on in so many institutions. It's a problem, potential problem for a neophyte devotee. I'm very... Um, uh, strong on this point in my talk, so I don't think you'll have to suffer from that. But then I should be careful because you may go to the other side and think that, well, should we show respect to our Guru Dave? <laughs> he never accepts it anyway. <laughs> no. And, uh, you know, it, it wasn't that Prabhupada orchestrated all of the 
the kind of the standard of worship that he ultimately, in regard that he received, it came quite naturally. And when Shudamarsh heard that Prabhupada was receiving artik every day, Guru Puja, he was quite surprised. He said, every day. Yeah. Uh-huh. As Bhakti Siddhanta Sashtakra did that once a year on the day of his appearance, he would sit up and seat and they would offer the artik and he, would, he gave us some talks explaining the dynamics of that, how one could be humble and still sit on the seat at the same time, but doing it as a service and so forth. But then, um, so he was a bit surprised, and then he said, and so the devotees are encouraged by that? He said, oh, yes. And I said, oh, yeah. And it all makes sense. And they get a lot of that out of that. And I remember that when I joined Prabhupada's mission, there wasn't an artik every day for Prabhupada. There was never an artik for Prabhupada, in fact. And one day in Calcutta, we were on a walk, and one of the devotees said that, Prabhupada, we've heard that it's all right to offer artik to the spiritual master. And Prabhupada, yes, it is your duty. It should be done. Continued walking and so forth. And they had a plan, these devotees. They had heard about that. They wanted Prabhupada's permission, so they kind of got it in that way, they thought. You know, because Prabhupada said, yes, it was a duty to worship. Yes, of course. And this goes on with whatever else he's talking about. They ran back to the temple and arranged for an arti so that when Prabhupada came back from his walk, which he would take in the morning before the class and so forth, and he came in and read the deities and sat down, and there was a pujari ready to offer an arti. So Prabhupada accepted it. And then, telegrams and we didn't have emails in those days. Phone calls went all over the world. The Prabhupada accepted Artik after greeting the deities and before the class. And this is the song we sang. Sri Guru Charanapadmana. Chittananda sang the song. He was there at the time and taught us the song. So then it became just done everywhere. Everybody was, well, we can do that. That's great. And so then it started like that. And it just became standardized. So he didn't order it and he was quite unassuming in, in, in respects, but he did emphasize the importance of the role of the guru, as was appropriate to people who didn't know anything about what a, what a guru is, and it's rather a new thing in many respects. So, and then, uh, in, in, say, in Vrindavan, they had that idea to build a... They already had a temple for the deity and so forth, Radha Vrindavan Chandra. They were very nicely taken care of. They were famous for the how they were taken care of and the measure of the standard of the devotion there in Vrindavan. So they had a plan for the Prabhupada's palace. and I mean, he never lived in it or anything like that. It wasn't even a residence, I don't think. You know, this gone was very much uh, filled with Guru Bhakti. Siddharmarsh once commented that usually the Guru will have a couple of very dedicated disciples, but he was very surprised that so many, Prabhupada, so many, that uh, he drew such intense dedication from, was exceptional example in his experience. And so, you know, it's, it's understandable that um, they would react, someone would react in that way to the idea of over-glorifying Prabhupada, but there's an explanation for that. When it turns to fanaticism and it's in conflict with the philosophy and teaching, then it becomes inordinate and an obstacle, it becomes, uh, in the words of the Puranas cited by Arupa Goswami, a disturbance to the society. And I can tell you frankly that as far as, it's a huge obstacle. I mean, I guess you know it yourself too. <laughs> you try to get through that and that kind of fanaticism. And it's, it's very difficult because they, they force you to say, well, you know, he's not that great or something like that. <laughs> it's, it's like, got to put it in context here. And, it's, and then, he's, then they call it relativizing, you know, Prabhupada. But there is some relativity also to that. According to time and circumstance and place, he appeared and acted in a certain way and said certain things and, and so forth. And the phenomenon of the guru, the guru tattva, it transcends that time and place and circumstance. So, it's important to develop a, a Madhimadikari conception of Guru and not just a Kanishtadikari conception of Guru in time and in a natural way, of course. 
They wrote something about it. Maybe you read it in the recent sangha called Chastity to Prabhupada. Yeah. Some of these things okay. came up. Did you follow it? Could you follow with the argument there? I read it all the once before I left mm-hmm. quickly, but uh, I got the basic. You can read Chastity. it amongst yourselves. So I think that Kamalakshu has it printed out. He told me. I'm not sure if he has a printout, but we can open it on the computer and let everyone read. Yeah, it should be helpful for you to sort out these these kinds of issues. So, full dedication to Sri Guru. That should be our our position, and a sentiment that is grounded in the, in the philosophy. These two, Bhakti and Vedanta, not just bhakti and no Vedanta. At the wall, if you don't have knowledge, then your sentiment. Uh, these sentiments for Krishna, they should and Guru, and they should arise out of out of knowledge, not out of ignorance. Sentiments that arise out of ignorance—that's the material world, and they're problematic. To so real devotion to Guru, then will bring harmony. So we we suffer from that in the world today. Yeah. In the name of Guru, Guru Bhakti, fanaticism. It's a huge problem. What else? Yes. Guru Maharaj, could you speak something about the Nitya Lila of Gore? Because, because in comparison to that of Radha and Krishna, uh, at least to me, it seems kind of like, and I guess it's a bit offensive to say, but it seems a little bit boring. Because in, in, in Radha Krishna's Lila, there's so many like obstacles and things to move around. They have to slip out the windows and <laughs> watch out for the Tulang, things like this. But mm-hmm. in, in, in the Nikhil of Gore, at least from what I've heard, it's, it's much more like, like uh, there's no, no such opposition in mm-hmm. the Lila. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But, that, but it could just be that I, I don't know, I don't know enough of it or, or the truth details. No, no. The, I think you, you have to think that um, if we were living a f- life as a sadhaka in ecstasy, then it wouldn't be a boring life. So the life in Krishna, in Gaurila, is like being a sadhaka but actually as a siddha, but an appearance as a, as a practitioner. Mahabrabhu was appearing as a practitioner, a worshipper of Krishna. This is the main, our main uh, emphasis. So, uh, if you, sometimes in your life as a sadhaka, you get a little excited about being involved in all these things. So, to take that and multiply it unlimitedly. Very exciting life. And it's all about the worship of Radha and Krishna at the same time. As in Gaur Leela, then as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu goes into the trance of Krishna Leela, then the devotees they go with him and come back. That's pretty mysterious and exciting. And doing Sankirtan along the banks of the Ganges, and suddenly it turns into a pasture, and there are millions of cows, and Krishna and Balaram herding the cows. And <laughs> And then coming back to Gorlila, and of course Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is, is, is extremely charming. The sense that he is Krishna himself sometimes comes, sometimes goes, and he's just a uh, just, I shouldn't say just, but he's uh, like, a, like a guru. So to live with your guru always, that's an exciting life. So it's something like that. We don't have to add any extra excitement to it and make inordinate parallels to to Krishna Leela and Parakya and so forth. Some people like to do that, but our Goswamis have not done that in anything they've written about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Someone in the name of making more out of Gaur Leela may say something like, oh, Gaur Leela is more than just a a stepping stone to to Krishna Leela and therefore 
just see there are every parallel to the parakya and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is meeting secretly with ladies and so forth, but we don't find any. And Rupa Goswami writing about that, Sanatana Goswami, they were the ones who were particularly empowered to tell what war was about. And nothing that even remotely resembles that in any of their writings. So in the name of that, some people want to make this, this kind of argument. Why Gaur Leela is just, is that all it is? It's just a, just a stepping stone to Krishna. Isn't it more than that? There must be more there. But that, to say this is it's like saying, do you think that the, that the Guru is just a stepping stone to Krishna? Do we think like that? The giver is more important than the gift. In our everyday experience, that for the most part, the giver is more important than the gift. Right? So even if you give me something, I don't know what I'll do with it. You know, I'll find something to do with it because you gave it to me, and I like you, and I know that you have given. You know, you're, you're, you've given me. It's just the thing is nothing. It's just a representation of your heart, the object. I mean, so we can turn it that way, and I think that that's more appropriate. Mahaprabhu is the giver. He's given the gift of Krishna Leela, so he's more important, the giver, than the gift. First, all regard to the to the giver, and then the, the gift that he's giving itself is. If you also give me something that's very useful, then <laughs> then so much so much more. So it's not in any way that we have to dress up Gaur Leela and make it out to be more than what the Goswamis have written about, and they've always, they've placed him as he's Krishna, but his Krishna has come as his Leela as the Guru to teach us how to enter Krishna Leela. This is extraordinary. So through Gore, through Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, and following his the method to his madness, we we enter into Krishna Leela. But it doesn't mean that we lose a connection with Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and his Leela. So we have a place in both. But we would have no place, no standing in Krishna Leela without Gaur Leela. So, and again, it's the exciting idea. In other words, the things that you read about bhakti, that uh, everyone in the Arctic is falling and rolling on the ground, and uh, hairs erupting and uh, chanting long, so many hours, and uh, you read about these, these kind of things. And so, a life like that, in a perfected sadhaka deha, that is a, really a, a siddha deha, a spiritual body, that would be exciting. Now you come to the kirtan, obligatory, and <laughs> and sometimes falling asleep when chanting, and sometimes you see something that's very nice. You get a glimpse of the, yeah, this is why I want to be here, and, uh, and the name s- stops your mind, and the soul comes out a little bit, and you feel ecstasy, and but it doesn't reach the the heights that you uh, hear. The Mahabhu, there the Leela's going on and someone gets initiated and immediately they become ecstatic with love of God. So that is pretty exciting. <laughs> that kind of life. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, very dear and attractive friend to enter the kirtan with him in the house of Sri Vastakur, madness. And that madness is the experience of Krishna Leela that he enters into and you go with him. So. I don't think we should have to try to make out more than what the Goswamis have given. It's very attractive. It's attractive to us also, it should be, because we are as sadhakas, and, and here he's coming to us in the form of a, of a sadhaka. So it's very easy to identify with. And this is very intelligent, Bhagavatam says. This is the most intelligent thing, Sumedasa, to worship Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. You will not be the loser of anything. You will not be missing anything by that. Very easy to cultivate Dasya Bhakti to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. But it's different than ordinary Dasya Bhakti to Vishnu because it begets Rag Bhakti to Radha and Krishna. So it's very different, not ordinary kind of Dasya Bhakti of Vaikuntha. And also to you see that it's all there, that the flute has become the Murdanga. That's very wonderful. <laughs> And all the players are assembled. Gadadhar is, is also as Radha is there to uncover the mystery of the players and so forth. Yes? I was just thinking when, we, when you were answering Madhuranath's question, 
You were saying that the guru guides the, the worship of his students. But I was thinking that could it be that sometimes the guru says no to something out of humbleness? Or is, is a no a no? <laughs> <laughs> you could try a second time no harm try a second time if he says no again then we're controlled by love and affection so there's affection behind that and it'll probably be difficult to, to resist but if it's being done because oh we're supposed to do this and we think we learned it's supposed to be like this and this is the ritual and so forth it won't be as attractive what else? Anything else? All right, so we'll stop this morning here and then we'll meet this evening. Continue speaking from Chaitanya Charitamrita. Simon Goranga Mahaprabhu ki jai, Tananda Prabhu ki jai, Sipodi Vaishnav Guru Paramparaki jai, Gaur Bhaktavinda ki jai, Gaur Premanandi.